Hey there, it's Raghuvan Avalon. Two big things to watch for on Monday, January 9th. President Joe Biden meets with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador at the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City. The pair are expected to talk through trade issues, drug trafficking, and migration. And the House meets at 5 p.m. today when it will consider the rules package for the 118th Congress. For more on that, here's Deputy Editor Zach Staten and Playbook Editor Mike DeBonis. Mike, I'm wondering uh, if as a uh, recovering Hill reporter, uh, maybe you can walk us through some of this. Unfortunately, that I am well equipped to do this, um, <laughs> I'm sad to say. It used to be that this was a pretty low octane thing. Like there would be these little changes. And the, the most sort of obvious one is that they would always have to rename the Education and Labor Committee to the Education and Workforce Committee or vice versa, depending on whether Republicans or Democrats are in charge. And to be clear, they will be re renaming the Education and Labor Committee back to the Education and Workforce Committee. But there's all these other issues that became the subject of these extremely highly pitched negotiations. And some of these promises that were made to win Kevin McCarthy the gavel are embedded in this piece of legislation, this this resolution that's going to supposed to be voted on later today. The the one that has um, probably gotten the, the most attention and really was the subject of the most commentary by House observers was the, the so-called motion to vacate. Now, to be clear, this nobody knew about this or cared about this <laughs> until seven and a half years ago. In 2015, the newly established Freedom Caucus they started sort of paging through the House rule book, looking for these sort of points of leverage to sort of exert their will as a minority in the Republican House majority. And they happened upon this, you know, this motion that that was established uh, some decades before. It, it didn't go all the way back to the beginning of the House, but certainly to the early 20th century, where any single member is empowered to raise a motion to vacate the chair, which essentially means that you can fire the Speaker of the House. And the, the context for all this was 2015, you had John Boehner as the Speaker, you had Barack Obama in the White House, and you had the two parties sort of at constant odds over fiscal matters, funding the government, uh, raising the debt ceiling, how much is the government going to spend, how much is the tax is the government going to raise, and conservatives just felt like they were constantly being sold out by their leaders, uh, John Boehner being chief among them. And they were sort of saw this as this cudgel to use as, well, we can get rid of you at any time. And and, you know, John Boehner sort of very astutely recognized that that would be a very difficult vote for his members to take, even if he could have survived it. And the Republicans at the time had a significant majority. They had a. 10, 15 seat majority, and he probably could have survived it, but it would have, you know, forced rank and file Republicans uh, to take this vote that would have possibly expose them to conservative opposition back home. Boehner didn't want to do that to his rank and file. So when uh, a young sort of, I don't want to say young, but a uh, fairly new, inexperienced backbench member named Mark Meadows filed a resolution uh, basically threatening to bring up this vote, Boehner decided to resign. Uh, he invited the Pope to give a speech. And the next morning he called it quits very suddenly. And uh, it, it was very widely seen that that was the sort of precipitating manner. So fast forward uh, 7.5 years, 
when Democrats took over the House in 2019, Nancy Pelosi saw how this was used and other Democratic Democrats saw how this was used and just saw it as a recipe for chaos. And they they changed it where you need you needed a majority of the majority basically to fire a speaker. Well, that wasn't going to hold for this splinter faction of uh, hard right Republicans who wanted to take the gavel uh, away from, you know, speaker elect uh, Kevin McCarthy. Here we are. Uh, McCarthy restored it to the, its sort of pre-Pelosi status quo where any one member can at any moment raise this motion and force a vote. Which really brings into question, you know, uh, how long Kevin McCarthy is uh, going to be able to hold on to the reins here, not to jump ahead of ourselves, but, you know, seeing as he was just elected a couple days ago. But, you know, it it certainly sets things up uh, for a pretty unstable next two years here. Yeah. And and like I said, you know, when this was when Boehner was threatened with this, he had a much larger majority than Republicans have now. Right. Republicans have a a five seat majority. They basically can lose four members before handing over the four to Democrats. It's really easy to see a lot of scenarios where Kevin McCarthy pisses off five members to the point that they might want to pull the trigger on this. And the obvious ones are government funding and uh, the debt ceiling, which is going to, you know, come up later this year at some point. But, you know, there's other things as well. Like, you know, one thing to start thinking about is, you know, abortion votes, you know, uh, every February to commemorate the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, Republicans historically, uh, when they're in the House majority, try to take votes on anti-abortion legislation. And what's Kevin McCarthy going to do about that this year? It's going to be one of his very early sort of uh, difficult tests. And if there's, you know, five, six, seven, eight, a dozen members who think he should have pulled up a vote on a national abortion ban, well, that could be, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's just one of those scenarios is going to come up once or twice a month where you know, at least the question is going to run through people's minds and it's it's going to be a routine thing in this new Republican majority. And it's really unheard of. And it's it's going to make for it's going to make for great playbooks is what it's going to make for. <laughs> but um, but it's not, it's not going to make for a happy time for Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. And we've already seen that it's not necessarily locked that the rules package uh, that we're expecting a vote on today uh, will will necessarily pass, at least in, in its current form. Uh, Congressman Tony Gonzalez suggested that he was not really sold uh, on the package as it exists. Uh, you know, he he fears that uh, some of the agreements that Kevin McCarthy made with uh, House uh, Freedom Caucus members will uh, pave the way for a vote on a balanced budget. Uh, it, it forces a vote on a balanced budget, actually, uh, is, is something that Kevin McCarthy promised. But uh, while that is a longtime Republican priority, the specific ways in which it would likely manifest would result in likely around a 10% cut to the Pentagon budget, which a lot of defense hawks in the Republican Party are not necessarily on board with. Um, We also saw Nancy Mace, the uh, congresswoman from South Carolina, uh, say on on CBS on Sunday uh, that while she supported the overall package, she wasn't sure whether or not she would vote for it. And kind of, you know, through something of like a brush back pitch a little bit at Kevin McCarthy, which he said, you know, my question is really, you know, what backroom deals did they try to cut and did they get those? We don't know what they got. We haven't seen it. 
And it gives me a little bit of heartburn because that's not what we ran on, uh, which, you know, isn't necessarily the, the sunny language that you uh, want or necessarily expect uh, from your members just a, a couple days removed from the vote that made you Speaker of the House. Right. And she's not wrong. I mean, there were deals that were made that are not completely understood at this point. And even the ones that are understood are are pretty remarkable, as as the the extremely tireless Rachel Bade uh, <laughs> explained in uh, Sunday's playbook, you know, really, you know, keep an eye on this this agreement on the rules committee. Uh, where McCarthy has agreed to let the the hard right uh, occupy three seats on the I believe it's it's a thirteen seat committee nine to f- is it nine I to believe four? it's nine to four the majority party gets nine and the Democrats will get right. four so if you have so three yeah. three is veto three is a veto power exactly. to the hard right exactly yeah on the rules committee and like you know I see you you know hear people's eyes glazing over when you <laughs> mention the, the rules committee but like. You know, the Rules Committee basically decides what gets done and doesn't get done in the House. And, you know, and it also holds the power to sort of create and diffuse political bombs in terms of amendment votes and, you know, other things that can, you know, mean the difference between bill legislation passing and not passing. So, and it can also mean the difference between an election being won or not. Uh, you know, in, 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 as, right, in exactly. as much as the Rules yeah. Committee can really be used to avoid putting uh, politically controversial or politically disadvantageous issues up for a vote, you know? And so if you do have the Freedom Caucus members, you know, maybe siding with Democrats to, uh, you know, force a vote on an issue that maybe Republicans in swing seats or moderate Republicans aren't so comfortable with, that could really cause some, uh, I don't know, heartburn. It wasn't that long ago that Democrats sort of uh, held up some major appropriations bills by basically forcing Republicans to vote on the question of Confederate flags in uh, military cemeteries, Mm. that taking that vote basically uh, halted progress of, I believe it was either a defense or uh, the Milcon VA uh, appropriations bill, which is those are usually the easiest ones to pass. But one one nasty amendment can be the difference because people just don't want to take those votes and it it gets really hairy really quick. So anyway, this is all stuff to keep a, keep keep an eye on. We still don't know what also what promises were made in terms of who gets on certain committees, who gets to lead certain committees. Uh there was a lot of speculation uh on Friday and Saturday about, you know, what was promised to Matt Gates in terms of the armed services subcommittees that he was seeking to lead. So this is all stuff that we're going to be watching over the next uh few days and weeks. And meanwhile, while there was all that action happening uh, here in Washington, you know, uh, President Biden was in El Paso, uh, Texas, at the U.S.-Mexico border on Sunday, and he's headed to Mexico City today, uh, where he'll meet with uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as AMLO, the uh, Mexican president. Um, Say say the whole name, Zach. Say the whole name. I am. <laughs> you're calling my bluff here. No, uh, it, it, no it, it, it is. I remember this. It's uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. If you'll please forgive my uh, high school uh, inflected Spanish pronunciation uh, from Metro Detroit. Um, that, that's it. That's actually much better than I would have done. So, bravo. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, he'll be meeting with Ablo. It's sort of a, a tense moment uh, for him in that he's had to occupy sort of a, a new position on immigration for him, or maybe not a new position so much as a new 
new posture, maybe, is perhaps a, a terminology that they would prefer, where he's been forced to shift to the center a little bit. And certainly that was a move that's born of political necessity, as we've seen a, an increase in uh, migrants at the border, you know, in El Paso. We saw migrants sort of straining city resources uh, and officials in El Paso, El Paso started arresting migrants sleeping outside, among other things, in, in recent days. House Republicans were upset that they were not invited along to, to the border visit by Biden. But uh, all in all, you know, this is, this is sort of an interesting change in, in how the White House is addressing the issue and, and suggests that you know, this issue could take center stage here. Um, and it's not necessarily one that the White House would love to be talking about at the moment. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when you say that this is sort of a pivot of necessity, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you've got a you know new House Republican majority coming in, and the one thing you can count on is that they're going to be hammering him on the border constantly. I, I do. I recall. Uh, I think it was James Comer. It might have been uh, another one of the incoming House Republican chairmen who said something along the lines of, "We're going to give Alejandro Mayorkas a parking pass because he's going to be down here testifying so often," uh, referring to the the Homeland Security Secretary. And, uh, you know, we saw last week the the White House roll out this new sort of immigration policy regarding uh, immigrants from certain countries and whether they can even uh, apply for asylum at the border. And they sort of changed the policy for where whereby creating a, a, you know, a sort of right way to do it where you sort of go through the proper channels, arrive on an airplane, get a get all the papers in order. But if you come, if you just not basically knock on the door, if you get apprehended at the border at a, at a border crossing, um, you will be immediately sent back. And uh, that is a, uh, you know, upheaval from the, the typical asylum process. And it sent a lot of migrant advocates um, into a rage. But uh, it's something that the, the White House really thinks that they need, they have to do right now. And obviously, migrant policy is going to be a huge Part of these conversations that Biden and AMLO have in the, in the next few days, you know, one of one of several very fraught topics that they're going to have to go over. You know, the drug trade obviously is always a huge topic of conversation between the U.S. and Mexico, and there's a, a big push to crack down on fentanyl in particular. Um, and then there's there's some really simmering trade disputes right now uh, between U.S. and Mexico. Mexico is banning the importation of genetically modified corn, mm. which is a huge problem for American agriculture that sold, I believe, something like $3 billion worth of GMO corn to Mexico in recent years. So they got to work that out. There's questions about car, you know, auto manufacturing. There's just a huge trade between uh, over the southern border in terms of auto parts and finished autos. And there's just a lot of that stuff that's really reached a very uh, fever pitch at this point. And uh, so there's a lot actually writing on this this summit in Mexico City. Uh, so we're going to be watching that pretty closely. Yeah. And it should also be interesting to see uh, how Biden and AMLO interact. You know, they've had a sort of strained relationship. Uh, we saw uh, earlier last year, uh, he, uh, AMLO, that is, uh, snubbed Biden's Summit of the Americas, uh, upset about the lack of inclusion for Cuba, I believe it was. And it's possible that uh, the politics have, have changed a little bit and, and maybe they won't be quite as 
quite as contentious in person, <laughs> uh, but uh, but it will certainly be something to keep an eye on, uh, given given the dis- trade disputes and the drug issues and the migration issues and everything else that is sort of on the line here. Uh, it'll be certainly one to watch. Zach Santon, thanks for coming on. Be sure to subscribe to the Playbook newsletter if you haven't, politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Mike DeBonis. Thanks for listening.